The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So remember that when we pick up a study like we're doing these seven weeks, observing, learning how to observe the feeling tone, you know, we deconstruct and we map out this activity of the mind, because feeling tone is part of the activity of the mind, even though a lot of the feelings we feel have a visceral embodied quality, but not all feelings. Some feelings are really more just a mental activity, but a lot of the feelings we feel can be felt in the body as well. Like, if I see something really disgusting, it will be unpleasant as a mental experience, but my body it's repulsion in seeing something really disgusting. I'll have a bodily reaction. So feelings show up in the body as tension a lot. But uh, the interesting thing that we can start, you know, we, we deconstruct it, but don't presume that like in your own subjective experience, there's going to be a very clear thing over here that we call sense contact, where I'm hearing a sound or seeing a sight or feeling a touch, thinking a thought, and then there will be perception as a distinct event, and then feeling tone as a third distinct event, and then mental formations or reactivity as a specific thing. Yeah, it's not, it's really not that clean, and especially with the contact, perception, feeling tone, it's just what we call having an experience or knowing an experience. And when I look at an experience, I can be interested in that momentary contact, a sight being seen, a sound being heard, a touch being felt, a thought being known. Or I can highlight like the part of that moment of experience where the mind recognizes the experience, like puts a label on it, oh, I'm seeing this person. Or the effective feeling tone, that push. So one example you could use, um, somebody sent a question in just before class, just asking me to clarify this, and especially in terms of what we call emotions. But if I had a video camera that was simply recording the visual experience, right, but there would be no effective force in that video recording. It would still record the visual experience, or I could have a microphone recording the hearing, you know, the sounds in the space, or I could have some other sensitive apparatus machine recording, you know, any number of phenomena, but there wouldn't be an effective force related to the sensitivity of the camera and the visual experience that it was recording. That happens when you have a human mind and body, right? Because that's how the past affects. This word affective is important. It's the affective aspect of the present moment. Because I'm having an experience through one of the six sense gates and I recognize it, then my past conditioning, my past relationship with previous or similar experiences, it's going to inform this particular sense experience 
and it's going to arise as an affective feeling, a feeling tone that's affecting the mind and sometimes the body. Not always, but sometimes the body, right? So when you're when we ask like what's the feeling tone? What you know, what does the Buddha mean by feeling tone? It's like we're having experiences and we're being affected by the experience. How do I know I'm being affected right now by experience? Well, we look then, oh yeah, I'm, I'm feeling. And when we're not being affected, what do we call that? A neutral experience, <laughs> right? Because it doesn't affect us. We tend to ignore it. That's the big habit around neutrality. It's like, I'm not even going to give it the time of day because the flavor is, it's affects, the way it affects me is to ignore it. It's actually an, you know, I'm being affected. Like, there's some tension there. Like, I'm conditioned, I'm being conditioned not to notice, not to be interested, right? But it doesn't seem like it's hard to notice the affect of neutrality. And the way we see it is like, you know, when we take up a meditation anchor, like being with the breath, which is, you know, a lot of the time pretty neutral. It's like how difficult it is just to be interested, just to track one in-breath, let alone one in-breath and then an out-breath and then another in-breath. It's hard because of the affect, the way we're affected by the neutrality of the, of the breath. It's like hard to keep it in mind. Seems like there's so many more juicy things for the knowing mind to be knowing. Like, like the thought, I'm bad at this. I'm bad at mindfulness of breathing. I'll know that <laughs> instead of just the sensations of breathing in. Or I'm better than you are at this. Or, you know, any number of things the attention will go to. In one of the discourses, the Buddha says, be it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, one's own or others, one knows them as not worthy of grasping, deceitful, effervescent, seeing how they impinge again and again and disappear, one wins non-attachment from the feelings, free from suffering. So we're really learning not to be, like to be in this, it's really a place of uh, empowerment to be aware that feeling the heart, mind is being affected by sense contact all the time. And to keep that in mind, how because I've been conditioned in the past, this mind stream, then when I'm triggered, when the heart mind is touched by experience, that past informs it to like, to not like, to ignore. And I want to stay right at that place. And like I mentioned in the guided sit, if you catch yourself already entangled in worrying and planning and reacting in emotion, even really beautiful emotion, even really sublime emotion, doesn't matter, but to trace back, well, what's the feeling? So remember, feeling is before, doesn't require any concept. Because that's why um, Venerable Analio using the push, that word push, is useful, even though 
we're mostly talking about a mental phenomena, there is this sort of way the mind is being affected. And uh, Barbara wrote a question about, is feeling the same as feeling tone? I mean, we, in the Buddhist tradition, not everybody, but we often try to use a different word, you know, or phrase, feeling tone, because in English we use feeling all kinds of ways, right? I'm feeling sad. But before that activity of being sad, let's say I'm crying, there's there's a push. And like if I'm already feeling sad and crying and thinking about why I'm sad and crying some more, then a lot of that we'd call mental formations. So emotional on an emotional psychological response or an emotional psychological reaction to the sense experience, which is the specific contact and the way the mind recognizes that contact and the effective feeling tone. So the reason you, I mean, it's okay, and I use feeling for feeling tone a lot, that we um, generally, like in more technical ways, will use the phrase feeling tone when we're referring specifically to that effective push before the mind has gone down the road into a psychological, emotional response to the experience. And so, but you know, it happens obviously really quickly. And so we're often, when we catch it, we're already beginning to have an emotional, psychological response to the experience. But that's okay, because that's what's being known. And then the, the, the practice movement then would be to be interested, well, what's the underlying feeling here that is related to the psychological, emotional response or reaction? What's the feeling here? Can I get back, you know, of course it's changing, but in every moment there is a feeling tone to attune to. So we're really learning this more subtle aspect of the moment that we call the affective feeling tone. Because it's affecting the mind and the shape of the mind and how the mind is understanding and choosing to respond or react or close down or turn away or do backflips, but the mind, heart, body gets affected all the time by experience. And in a way, this is, you know, one definition of samsara, the cycles of suffering, is that we're constantly pushed around by experience, and in particular by the effective feeling tone of experience. We're, in a way, oppressed or even enslaved by the past, because the feeling tone, the uh, the way my heart's being affected, where else would that way of me being affected right now come from, if not the past? And the way we liberate ourselves is we bring a lot of presence, a lot of wise presence, because we can't really stop the feeling tone from affecting the moment, but we can learn to understand how feeling tone is affecting the moment. So you may treat me in a way that triggers my conditioned habit to be defensive 
and to feel humiliated or something like that. But if I've <clears throat> been practicing, then the wise presence will feel that push of that unpleasantness. And because I can be with that push of unpleasantness, I don't have to, I could, but I don't have to go into the emotional, psychological response or reaction to that humiliation. Like to hit back with my words, you know, try to insult that person, or to close down, or to run away, or, you know, whatever our habitual tendency is when I'm feeling that feeling, that, you know, that unpleasant feeling probably. Now, another thing about, uh, well, let me, I'll, I'll cover that a little later. <clears throat> so in this way, um, you know, the Buddha makes a big deal of learning how to be with this way the heart is being affected due to whatever experience is being known. And so, you know, because there are so many experiences being known in any moment, it's the more predominant experiences that we're interested in. So don't feel like you have to know every feeling tone, just like how could we know every sense contact or every perception. There's just so much happening moment by moment. But some aspects of the present moment are more affecting than other experiences in the present moment, right? And those are the experiences we care about. And so that's what we mean when we say, like, well, what's predominant? And as you know, like, we don't always work with a specific um, meditation anchor because, it, although it can be very helpful, like, to do mindfulness of breathing and work with the sensations of breathing in and breathing out, but it's also nice to cultivate a more open attention so that we're getting good at noticing what's predominant. What is attention drawn to paying attention to? Because it's predominant, because it's affecting, right? There's something about that sense experience and the perception of it that is causing this affection, right? The heart is affected by it. And there's a push into some sort of mental, bodily activity, psychological, emotional, and bodily activity, right? And and then we feel the push, and we're training to be right at that push. So uh, these questions like emotions and moods and um, affects or um, uh, reactions, they're just, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, you're not going to find a clear line between like the feeling tone and the mood or the feeling tone and the attitude or the feeling tone and an emotional response because they're just, they lead to it. And remember, it isn't like there was one experience and that's all that's happening. And then with that experience is a feeling tone and then some kind of you know, movement toward a mood or an attitude or emotional response because there's just another experience and another feeling. So there's so much happening. We're just getting the general conditional or lawful nature of how 
the past through feeling tone is conditioning the present. And then if I act out the feeling tone based on habit, so if it's an unpleasant push, and then the emotional psychological response is going to be conditioned by that unpleasantness, what I say, what I do, right? Then I'm conditioning the future. So I think I mentioned that last week. The reason the Buddha makes a big deal of being mindful, being present with this more subtle aspect of our experience is it's where we learn about how the past is conditioning the present and how we respond to this feeling, how that conditions the future. So this is why it's such a potent place. And the sort of technical way we talk about it is, you know, we're a sensitive human being through these six senses. So because of that, there's contact, there's sense experience. Because of sense contact, there's feeling. Some of you will recognize this as the Buddhist map of dependent co-arising, which we study as one of the Buddhist studies courses. So we're sensitive in these six ways. We have sense contact, sense experience. There will be feeling, tone. And without a lot of wisdom in that moment, feeling tone leads to craving. So the push, basically the, uh, the habit energy gets identified with the push, gets attached. And then the push leads to action. So it goes from feeling to craving, that's the identification with the push, to grasping. Grasping just means you're doing something about the craving. Right? You can have craving, know you're craving something, but when you go to the fridge, then you're actually grasping, you're doing something. And then when you've gone to the fridge and you've gotten what you're going to get and you've consumed it, then you've become the one who's acted on craving, you've grasped, That's you've become somebody, right? So you have some karma, meaning all that means is whatever that left behind the feeling, the craving, the grasping, the going to the fridge and eating something, then the mind going forward has that imprint in it, right? So in a way, we've dug the groove a little deeper, the habit a little deeper of this, whatever triggered that, a thought about the fridge and what's in it, you know, and then a feeling associated with that thought, like, oh, and then identification with that feeling tone, that's the craving, and then doing something about the craving, that's the getting up and going to the fridge and taking it out, putting it in our mouth and tasting it and delighting in it and swallowing. And and then the becoming, the next step is like we've become the person who has this karma, who has whatever the impression was, that impression lives on in the mind stream. Whatever's left over from having done what you know the mind and body just did. So it's not judgmental in any way, it's just sort of like when we become, we become sort of the result, We the results get integrated in whoever we are, whatever we are going forward. And the Buddha calls that the entire mass of suffering, <laughs> right? Because we're, we're basically reinforcing the habit of being led around, forced to act out feeling tone based on our conditioned habits, which is basically 
to go after what we like, what's pleasant, to run away and hide and hit back when it's unpleasant, and to ignore neutrality. But obviously it's more complex than that, but that's the basic movement. And then the amazing thing is when we bring attention right to the level of feeling tone, there's some immunity. When we can, when we, there's enough stability of present moment awareness to really stay with that raw, immediate force in the heart. Let me just see here. A couple questions came in. Um, yeah, is push the same thing as experiencing the feeling? Well, we can either be aware of the push or we cannot be aware of the push. And if we're not aware of the push, then the deep habit will be to identify. You know how it is. It's like when we feel that push of attraction, of liking, it really seems like there's a self who wants that. But when we, when, when in a way the mind is uh, st stabilized in present moment awareness, then that push is just seen as a natural phenomenon being known. It's just another thing being known. But yes, the push is a way that effective force, these are words we use to point to what we're training the mind to be aware of. And then uh, another comment here, can feeling tone and the tendency to crave pleasant and avoid unpleasantness be thought as similar to, oh, I don't know, uh, paramecia movement or helotropism in plants? It does not even require a theory or consent of the mind or complex nervous system. Well, this is the, yeah, I mean, I don't know the, the specific um, biological experience there that you're pointing to, uh, but yeah, it's really interesting how uh, humans use, it's like a, it's an information system feeling tone. So it's not like a mistake, you know, it's not like evolution made this huge mistake and we have pleasant, unpleasant feeling tone and, you know, somehow evolution took a wrong turn and, and the result is we have a lot of suffering human beings. It's very efficient and it's, as people are realizing, it's very related to the emotional system, which is a very sophisticated system to further survival. Right? So there's a point to it. But as a spiritual person, right, by in a way, the definition of being a spiritual human being is we see the sort of governing forces or the forces that govern survival. And because of the nature of our thinking, imagining minds, we can see like uh, what that is for this living thing to be totally into survival. And we can imagine, uh, even though there's a lot of conditioning towards survival, we can imagine, we can sense the limitations of just living this life to survive. You know, as, lo as long as we can survive. And I think most human beings are at that place where 
it's not just about survival. And being spiritual then means we are asking the question, okay, there's nothing I can do about the way I'm conditioned except understanding with that wisdom, that stability of present moment awareness, understanding the forces that support survival as nature and not self. And that's different probably than other living things, I don't know, but presumably plants and more simple animals for sure have less of the capacity to, with their knowing mind, to reflect on the force of survival as nature. And then that gives, like I was saying with uh, feeling tone, it gives some immunity to just being driven by the conditioning, whether it's genetic conditioning or cultural conditioning. There's some freedom where, because the mind feels the push, feels the force of that conditioning, but because the um, feeling tone depends on, like, uh, it's not completely wired in, as, and this is maybe your point, Charles Lee, that the feeling tone isn't wired in. So I can feel repulsed, I can feel something that's deeply unpleasant, but I don't have to do anything about it. Because we have it, we have this, and that makes a lot of sense, because this is what makes humans very good at uh, you know, taking over the planet because this kind of emotional system we have and affective system that we have, it, it allows for a kind of complexity that more simple animals don't have. Because sometimes a really unpleasant feeling should go right to some strong reaction. But not always. And so I have this capacity to be with unpleasantness or to be with pleasantness without doing something, right? So if it's like we see somebody who has something I really want, but they're bigger than us or they have more power than me, so I'm not going to take it from them, but I really want it. That's the push, the effective push. is like, I want that thing. But I have this ability as a human being to realize I really want it, I really want it, but I'm not going to take it. It doesn't make sense to take it. So what are my options? Where I could repress the desire to take it, the attached desire to take it, but then it's just going to eventually explode, right? Because repression doesn't really work for long. Or if I, if I learn over time, I can be really aware of the push, and then I find some freedom, like if I can be intimate with the push, I realize that I don't need to gratify that desire to be free of it. Because it will go away on its own. The push goes away. This is the real discovery about the system of feeling tone. The unpleasant feeling tone, the neutral feeling tone, the pleasant feeling tone will go away without us having to get involved in some bodily, mental, emotional reaction to it. 
And once we learn that, it's like there is a lot of liberation in realizing I can wait out any feeling tone. And that really gives us power, like in, in just in terms of navigating our community life, where we, you know, because we live in community, we have to deal with a lot of feelings, feeling tones, a lot of desires, right? But we can't act on all of our desires when we're in community or anytime. So it gives us, and, and that can create a lot of, like if, all, if our only strategy is to act out our desires or to bury them, to repress them, we become an unhealthy person and we end up getting in trouble. But if we develop this capacity to be aware of feeling tone until it changes, we have a lot more capacity to navigate what it means to be a human being. John writes here, um, is it healthy, strategic to try to take the backward step from craving to feeling tone? Or should one simply try to be aware of craving? Yeah, but but if there's craving, well, well like part of what we mean by wisdom awareness, <clears throat> it's not just this penetrating depth into the sort of subtlety of the moment. But part of wise comprehension is a phrase in Buddhism. It really means like this breadth of present moment awareness. So we're really seeing cause and effect. We're comprehending how the moment is unfolding in a conditional or lawful way. And it's not conceptual. It's just reading, in a sense, the conditional or lawful nature. So when we're intimate with craving we'll see the feeling tone that's conditioning the craving. And if we're already in the action of grasping, doing something about the craving, we'll see the wanting, the craving, and we might even see the feeling tone and the experience. And when we're really good, we'll see where it leads to hell, <laughs> a hellish becoming. You know, we become somebody who's trapped in that uh, pursuing desire getting away from unpleasantness, going towards pleasantness. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to teach our dogs and cats not to act on the push. And this is what we observe in animals. You know, we, we observe this more robotic, when there's pleasantness, there's really not much choice but to do something to gratify it. When there's unpleasantness, there's really... Not much choice but to try to get away from it. But, you know, dogs, it's interesting with uh, mammals at least, and I think probably other animals, that like when it's really unpleasant, if there's something they can do about it, they'll do it. But if there's nothing they can do about it, they don't worry about not having anything to do about it. It doesn't seem, I mean, we don't really know. Um, but uh, humans, you know, we can, because of our system, our idea, our sort of psychological system, our ideas are very powerful. It's a very powerful conditioning thing. Because even though the experience of um, 
somebody mentioning ice cream, you know, going back to the whole the situation I described earlier. I see an ad on TV for ice cream. I, I realize there's ice cream in the freezer. So that thought, that image on the TV screen, and then the thought, there's a pleasant feeling with the thought of having it. Right? So there's that's that effective push. And then if I misunderstand that effective push as me, then all of a sudden there's a me who's not happy, but will be happy if I have it. But that required that moment of craving where a good definition for craving is to take desire personally. So desires, like when I realize there's ice cream in the freezer, then it's okay that there's desire. The problem is if I'm convinced, arrogantly sure, there's a me who will be uh, meaningfully happier if I have it. Right, so then, then there's a, uh, that's that's the grip of craving, because now the desire is in a sense owned by the the perception by the construction of a self, me. And so now I'm going to do something about it. And on and on. And so another question we can ask in this investigation is. Um, you know, you hear the Buddha saying, "Yeah, be mindful of feeling tongue," but if you don't want to. If you don't want to buy it, that's fine. Just ask the question: When I when I pay attention to what does the grip of attachment weaken and fall away? What do I need to pay attention to that causes attachment, the grip of attachment and grasping, to go away? And what, when I pay attention to what, does it get more intense? And the suffering that goes with that get more intense? So it's a really pragmatic question. We come to the relevance of being aware of feeling tone because it works, not because it's dogma. It's dogma because it works. So if we don't want to take the Buddha's, like what the Buddha discovered, we could just deal with it pragmatically. Okay, so like if I keep paying attention to the thought that there's ice cream in the freezer and the thought of what that would taste like and take that push of the pleasantness personally so it becomes craving, then what does that set in motion? Well, it sets in motion somebody who's tight because I can't be happy now because I imagine how happy I'll be if I have it. So that means right now I'm unhappy. Like if I really think I'm going to be happy having the ice cream, then I can't be happy now. I've just made myself unhappy by making, by identifying with the idea that if I have it, I'll be happy. How can I be happy now if I need that to be happy? So this, we create the suffering. Attachment creates suffering. The suffering of discontentment, you could call it. This is from <clears throat> Venerable Analio's book um, that I mentioned. Uh, it's really a great text on the Satipatthana. 
he writes um, in the chapter on feeling tone, the antidote to the activation of the underlying tendencies towards desire or craving, aversion, and ignorance is mindful observation of the nature of the feeling that has arisen. Developing mindfulness in this way has the intriguing potential to enable one to become aware of the reaction to any feeling, even before this reaction is fully started. Here, a special effort is required to remain mindful of feelings, even when the mind has been carried off by sensual fantasies, thoughts of aversion or vain imaginings. So this is what he's saying, like we might be really in the storm, but even in the storm, and that storm has some momentum, so it may not just cease because we know we're in a storm, right? We really want something, we're caught up, but we just do the work of, as best we can, keep turning the attention to the feeling tone. Feelings that arise at such times are obviously worldly types of feeling, and contemplating them with awareness is the very means for breaking through their conditioning impact on the mind. The way we break the chain of samsara, the endless spinning where the past is conditioning the present and then acting out the feeling tones conditions the future. The way we break it it is we stay aware of the feeling tone as best we can. We keep it in mind. This is from uh, another version of just saying how it works, especially when we already have gotten caught. This is from um, a book that Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield wrote a long time ago, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And this particular chapter um, was written by Joseph Goldstein. And they write, Awareness of feeling in this way, like being aware of feeling with balance and equanimity, provides a key for unhooking the mind once it has already been caught in a reactive state. Suppose the mind is lost in a lustful state with strong and delightful images enticing the attention. In addition to noticing the bodily sensations and images that are present, if we can clearly and precisely notice the pleasantness of these sensations or pictures, then we can see very different, very directly, that it is the feeling of pleasantness which is capturing the mind and the conditioning of grasping. So this is really important. It's not the experience. It's not like going back to the example. It's not me seeing the ad for ice cream. It isn't even the thought, oh, there's ice cream in my freezer. Those aren't essentially a problem. The problem is the feeling tone and the mistaking the feeling tone, thinking that it's my feeling as opposed to it's a feeling being known. It's a feeling tone being known. That's the problem. It's the misunderstanding of the feeling tone that creates all the uh, agitation and the the you know grip of all of our unwholesome reactivity. It's the misunderstanding of feeling tone. And just a couple more sentences here. 
by meticulously noticing and noting this aspect of pleasantness, the mind unhooks from the object, lets go of the grasping, and is aware of the pleasant feeling simply as another object of observation, rather than as something to hold on to. When we understand how desire or craving is conditioned by feeling, we see that the that underneath the wanting mind is a place of choice. In situations where we find ourselves caught in a reaction of strong clinging or aversion, this second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling tone, can be a powerful tool of investigation and freedom. So this next week, you know, we'll be especially interested in unpleasant experience. And, uh, you know, start with experiences that aren't overwhelmingly unpleasant. I mean, with those experiences, if you have them that are overwhelmingly unpleasant, you just do the best you can. But get especially interested in really workable, unpleasant mental experiences, like a painful memory, painful sight, a painful touch, a painful sound, and get curious about identifying with the push. Like It's kind of like sensing an arrogant certainty that I have a problem. And that idea that I have a problem, there's no space in the mind. It's like, no, no, that's actually what's going on here. I have a problem. I'm cold. I'm hot. I'm hungry, I'm this, I'm that. And if we can just back to, there's an experience being known, it feels like this, can I stay here? Can the awareness and wisdom be here? And then you can even experiment like turning your attention to other phenomena. Because like one of the examples the Buddha uses is, you know, when you rub two sticks together, I forget exactly how that works, but I guess there's different ways, you know, where you spin a stick, but to start a fire. But the fire depends on the contact, you know, the, the friction of the two things. So the arising of the feeling depends on that particular hearing that sound, seeing that sight, thinking that thought, having that memory. So one of the ways to break, like, if you don't have enough wisdom to see that the feeling is nature and not self, just to be aware of the feeling tone without, because of habit, personalizing it into craving where we get identified with the push. And so the desire becomes craving and there's a grip. Then practice well, you can just ask yourself, well, what else can I pay attention to in this moment? Why do I keep paying attention to this sound or this sight? You know, like you're trying to sleep at night. Maybe you have some thunder. I hear it in the background right now. Use Those of you in the western suburbs of Minneapolis probably have the storm. But anyway, let's say you're trying to sleep and there's a disturbing buzz of a street light or somebody's loud motorcycle or something like that. And it's like the awareness goes to the sound and then the sound triggers the painful feeling tone and the painful feeling tone triggers the emotional and psychological reaction. 
what the hell is somebody doing riding their motorcycle at one in the morning? Don't they have any compassion for those of us who have to get up and work? And on and on like that. And then, of course, those thoughts will be the next predominant experience. They will be painful thoughts, probably. That pain will trigger the next emotional and psychological reaction, and on and on it goes. So instead of the mind or the attention continually looking at an object that is unpleasant, you can ask yourself, well, what else can I pay attention to in this moment? Maybe I won't pay attention to sound. Or maybe I'll pay attention to this other sound. You know, I'll turn my fan on and I'll hear the sound of the fan. Or I'll turn some background music on. Or I'll pay attention to some, my breathing. Or I'll do loving kindness practice and pay attention to that. So sometimes we don't have enough stability and wisdom to see that feeling tone is nature and not self. That I can be intimate with the feeling tone without identifying with it. Identifying with the push from craving to grasping to becoming. I could just be with the feeling. But if we can't, then be aware of something else that has a different feeling tone. And you know we're caught when we want to keep going. And you know when we're really irritated and angry because of something difficult that's happened, even if we turn away from that, we tend to look for something else that will make us angry. Have you noticed? Because we're really in the rut. We really are identified with the emotional reaction to unpleasantness. So we'll look for more unpleasantness to feed the emotional reactivity. So that's where we can really, like if we have a good friend, they'll help us change the channel, won't they? Hey, let's go for a walk. Let's do this, let's do that, so that we can absorb and be aware of other experience that will break that aversive cycle or that greed cycle or whatever cycle we might be caught in. So I'm going to want to cover a few of the questions that have come in the last couple of weeks. This came in a couple of weeks ago. Um, this person writes, it was helpful to be given the prompt to pay attention to how we believe pleasant experience will become our savior. Some of you might remember, I think it was at least two weeks ago I mentioned that's part of that promise that's never kept around pleasant experience. This past week I've been noticing a lot of underlying stress and anxiety in my body, heart, and mind, and the result has been to ramp up my spiritual practices. Doing more sits, yoga, qigong, walks by the river, etc., However, I'm now noticing that my relationship to these practices over the past week has been an attitude that they will save me from my stress. A sense of craving has slipped in around, my pract around practice itself. I think, I'll just have to get through the next two hours of this unpleasantness and then I can do a guided sit. It's like I've been, uh, I've implemented a reward system for myself with spiritual practice as the prize. Yeah, and it's so cool that this person is noticing that. And the interesting phenomena that we that sinks in over time is 
Anything I have to run from becomes more of a monster. Anything I have to control, anything I have to fix, the idea that this is not okay makes it not okay. Now, there are some things that will kill us, <laughs> you know, but if there's something we can do, we do it. If there's nothing we can do, or if in doing something, there's nothing we can do that doesn't, that the doing of it turns out to be more stressful than just being with the feeling tone. I don't know if you remember the quote I read from Sylvia Borstein a few weeks ago. I won't be able to paraphrase it very well, but it's something like the discovery that the desire to fix, the desire to get rid of, turns out to be more painful than just being with the initial painful feeling or the, the feeling tone, whatever it might be. And this person writes, ironically and perhaps predictably, this has only ramped up my anxiety because the mind is focusing on relief from pain while knowing the relief is ephemeral, right? This is great wisdom. This is how the mind grows up and has deep spiritual insight. It sees this thousands of times, this cycle. It feels like, I'm reading again, it feels like I'm, I can get temporary relief on the cushion or on the yoga mat, but then it's over. I've become a spiritual junkie just waiting for my next hit. Now, it's still okay. Like, we do this all the time. I'm feeling a little anxious. I'll go have some chocolate. I'll go take a nap. I was a little anxious a little earlier. I took a bath. You know, nice hot bath. Put my bubbly in it. It's my special bath bubbles with just the right scent. I generally don't like scents, but more natural scents I kind of like. And uh, so it's okay to use pleasantness to modify the unpleasantness of anxiety or whatever the, the unpleasantness we're modifying. What we don't want to do is tell ourselves a lie because the bath works until it doesn't work. It doesn't really... It doesn't really uproot the tendency for me to get anxious. It just is, a, you know, we can use pleasantness as a way of shifting channels. Like I mentioned before, like taking a walk or hanging out with a friend can be a way to break the cycle. But eventually we have to learn to, because there's going to be some unpleasantness or pleasantness, or experience that we're not going to be able to avoid. And we're going to want to be able to be with the pleasantness without grasping. You know, be around an attractive person, somebody who for us is very attractive, but I'm in a committed relationship. Well, I want to be able to be around a really, 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 really attractive person without getting out of balance. Right? Without having to act on the attractiveness. Now, I can't make myself not attracted to people that I'm attracted to because 
that conditioning is already there. But I can understand the push as just an impersonal push. And that gives me a lot of freedom. It's same thing with, like, I don't have to steal things I like because I can feel what it feels like to like that thing and not have it. I know how to feel that feeling. I can get really angry at somebody without having to hit them because I know what it feels like. I know how to be with that feeling of anger, the unpleasantness of it, without acting it out by hitting somebody. Or sometimes, you know, maybe would be to run away or to hide. So it just gives us, like uh, the other quote I, I read, all these other choices. And we don't always want, you know, it's really useful to have a few tricks up our sleeve to be able to do qigong or to do a deep relaxation or to listen to guided meditation like this person is talking about. These are obviously pretty skillful ways to change the channel. But you can give yourself permission to use these things, but maybe start weaving in. <clears throat> like you say to yourself, if you need to listen to a, a guided meditation, fine. If you need to take a walk, fine. If you need to do some yoga, fine. But before, just sit and ask yourself to feel what you're feeling. And maybe lie down, like bring in a little comfort and then really turn to the unpleasantness of the anxiety. Can I feel the push of this anxiety? The push that leads me, leads to this sense of a me who wants to get rid of it, a me who needs to, to you know, turn away from it. And it's like we, we play as long as it can still be play. As soon as it's not play, it's probably good to change the channel. But as long as there's some lightness, there's some space in the mind, some real interest, then like practice dying to it. Like, let, oh, let's just see, maybe it will kill me. I mean, I'm saying that as a joke, right? But it, because that's sort of the story in the mind. Like if I feel this anxiety, I'm going to suffocate. I won't be able to breathe. It's going to trap me. Well, that's so when there's still enough curiosity, enough space of wisdom, then check it out. And then when it doesn't feel safe to check it out, then use one of those other techniques. So then we're really developing our bandwidth to be with some of this strong, uh, you know, sometimes the most painful thing isn't real obvious. It's, it can be subtle, wormy unpleasantness and anxiety sometimes is like that fear can sometimes be like that it's not always this big obvious you know pain it can be kind of a destabilizing worminess uh, that's both visceral and mental emotional it has sort of elements of both body and mind this talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.